And you may be dismissed, children, to the children's church in the back. The Evens will take them and teach on their level. That's a blessing. All right. As I mentioned a second ago, I really do uh, genuinely thank those that put extra work in for some things that popped up while we were gone with a, uh, someone going to heaven and then the storm that came as well. Um, my wife and I really did enjoy our time. It's the, we bit, we'll celebrate 29 years of marriage this year, and uh, that was the longest we've ever had secluded, I think, including our honeymoon, I think. Uh, we've never had that long uh, just by ourselves with uh, the pressures of life and the job and the kids was just, uh, so we really enjoyed our time. I married a pretty great wife, and it's nice to spend time with her once in a while and just be able to have that one-on-one. And uh, so we did enjoy that. And she almost fixed me, so which is good. And I'm thinking two more weeks, maybe, go back out. I'm, if it's not quite done, you know, might try again. But uh, it was a blessing. We really did enjoy it and so grateful. But we are grateful to be back. Matthew chapter 9 is where we're at today. Matthew chapter 9. Before uh, I left, we began a, a series, uh, Suppers with Jesus. Uh, people do a lot of eating together. It's one of the primary ways that we fellowship. At Bible Baptist Church, we have a quarterly activity that precedes our quarterly meetings every, uh, every, four, every four months and, or three months. And uh, we do not have fellowship jogs. Aren't you grateful for that? We do not have fellowship football games. We do not have fellowship boxing matches, although that might be interesting. Pastor Forsberg and Pastor Nick, get them in a ring together. <laughs> we have fellowship dinner, amen? Because that's what we like to do. We like to eat a meal together. I heard a story about a kindergarten teacher who gave her class a show-and-tell uh, assignment. Each student was supposed to bring in something to show the class that represented their religion. So the day came, and the first boy got up, and he said, Hello, my name is Benjamin, and I am Jewish. And he said, This is the Star of David. The second little boy got in, uh, or little girl got in front of the class and said, Hello, my name is Mary. I'm a Catholic, and this is the Rosary Beads. The third little boy got up. He said, my name is Tommy. I'm a Baptist, and this is a casserole. That's what, <laughs> amen. That's what we like to do, isn't it? We like to eat together. We like to fellowship. And uh, that's what Baptists do. That's what Christians do. You know, in the Bible, Jesus did a lot of eating. If you go throughout the New Testament, it's interesting ever since I kind of had this idea in my mind, and now that I, I read through the New Testament, I've got uh, all these little instances where Jesus shared a meal with somebody or, or spent time with them in that way. And there's a lot of accounts, and it's important to look at because we see the why and the how Jesus eats with people. It's actually an important way for us to understand who He is and what He is about. So today we look at a Supper with Jesus and Matthew. Matthew chapter 9, starting at verse number 9. And as Jesus passed forth from thence, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom, and he saith unto him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. And it came to pass, as Jesus sat at meat in the house, behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto his disciples, Why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? But when Jesus heard that, he said to them, They that be whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. But go ye and learn what that meaneth, I will have mercy and not sacrifice. For I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Then came to him the disciples of John, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast oft, but thy fa disciples fast not? 
Jesus said unto them, Can the children of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken from them, and then they shall fast. Preach today on on Supper with Jesus and Matthew. Father, I pray you'd help us as we look at this passage. May we learn something that will be a specific challenge to our spirits. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We see the very first opening of this passage, a new priority in Matthew's life. Matthew was a tax collector, and the Hebrews hated tax collectors. They were very low down, and they were hated by the Jews because they served the Romans. We talked about this a little bit when we looked at the story about Zacchaeus. There were two classifications of tax men, the ordinary tax collector and then the custom house official, and he was called the douanier. And uh, the Jews especially hated the latter one. The douanier had a great power to enrich himself. He was spiteful to his enemies. He played favorites. He inflicted suffering on those that he wanted to. He could force any merchant to stop in his travels. He could basically what we're subjected to when we put a suitcase going through the uh, security at the airport. They want to. They can open that bad boy up. They can look at it and do whatever they want with it because uh, and that's what that's what the Duanway could do. He could take your uh, uh, your load or your whatever your packages were or whatever you were taking to town as a merchant. He could rifle through all of that. He could read private letters. He could charge whatever ta- tax he wanted to. He could generally make life miserable. This was who Matthew was. He was of that hated douanier class. He had his office in Capernaum. Now, these tax collectors were not allowed to go into the synagogues, but no doubt he has heard of Jesus. Everyone had heard of Jesus. And no doubt he has heard Jesus speak before. Uh, he would have been, of course, known Peter and James and John as they were businessmen there in Capernaum. Uh, they were not friends yet. Uh, but he surely had heard Jesus or heard about him. Evidently, he longed to be set free from his chains so that he could follow such a master, one that would do the miracles and preach the things that Jesus did. And then suddenly heaven opens before Matthew. Jesus stands in front of him right at his booth there. And there's uh, and he says to him, as we read there in verse 9, follow me. There is no discussion There is no, hey, think it over, or here's my offer. Think about it and get back to me. Simply said, follow me. Jesus must have read his heart, understood his longing, and then he issued his challenge. And Matthew, amazingly, he dropped everything and followed Jesus. And as a result, we have his gospel that we can hold in our hands today and uh, great things that he did. Matthew's new life began with the call. I want you to notice uh, the Bible says here, and as Jesus passed forth, this is in verse 9, from thence he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom and saith unto him, follow me, and he arose and followed him. Years ago, uh, when I was growing up, our family had a, uh, one of our family friends was a doctor. And we had went to his house several times. He had us over uh, to his house for a meal once in a while. And uh, we, we found out what it meant to be on call. Because he could be in the middle of a meal, or he could be in the middle of doing whatever, and if his, at that time, before cell phones, if his pager went off, then he would have to go and respond to that because he was on call. Uh, for example, we have one of our own, my friend Brett, that's been coming and, and uh, become a good friend of mine here and, and uh, grateful for his faithfulness to church. But once in a while, you'll see him at church, and he'll come to the service, and all of a sudden, he bolts up 
and has to leave. Now, this can be confusing to people sometimes because you can have the preacher up there preaching and, and uh, making some point out of Scripture, boys shouldn't play with dolls, amen? And then Brett gets up and leaves. And, and everybody might think, well, I guess Brett likes to play with dolls. I, I think he calls them action figures, right? That's Get away with it. But that's not it at all. You see, we might not realize he's on call. He works for the fire department. Praise the Lord for that. I'm grateful for your service there, too. Works for the fire department. And if there's a fire, there's something goes, if his, if his uh, radio goes off, he's got to go. It doesn't matter what happens or where he's at or what he's doing. He's got to respond to that. He is on call. In other words, for a time, someone who's on call doesn't have control over their lives because they're on call. If you're on call, you don't have control over your schedule. You don't have control over your time. If you're not on call, you do. You can do whatever you want to for however long you want to. But uh, if you are on call, you have to step up when that call comes through. Now, the Bible says that every Christian has been called. That was a verse we use in the Bible, and I always joke that it's a verse for other people. Romans 8.28. You ever notice that? Very few people are going through a hard time, and they think, yeah, but the Bible says that all things work together for good. More often, the verse is used when others are going through a hard time, and you give the verse to them, because it's a lot harder to see good coming from our own difficulties, isn't it? But I want to focus on the second part of that verse, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. Now, uh, the descriptions here are synonymous. All who love God and those who are called according to His purpose. Everyone who loves God Every Christian has been called. And dear friend, you're on call. And Matthew was on call. And you know what he did when he got the call? He responded. He got up and followed him. Jesus said, follow me. And he immediately dropped everything and followed him. He not only had a new priority, but now we see a new proximity. Look at uh, the, what we see next, the, the next scene here. By the way, just to set the, the scene, I guess, the scribes and the Pharisees are always looking for ways to accuse and oppose Jesus. And so now, Matthew did what new Christians do. I love this. New Christians, I love the excitement and the zeal. So Matthew now is a follower of Christ. And guess what he does? i got to get my friends in on this. And so what he says to, presumably, invites Jesus over to his home and says, Jesus, you come over for dinner. I'm going to have a whole bunch, of, sorry, supper. You people, uh, we're going to have a whole bunch of people over. I want you to come over, and I want you to meet all my friends. And so he has... His friends. And I tell you, he didn't have very good friends. He was a tax collector. He was a publican. He was not the type of guy that would be invited to church socials. He would be the type of guy invited to bars and parties. He would be invited to those, he would be, uh, in league with those that sold drugs and those who drank and partied throughout the night. And so, so societal outcasts. And the Pharisees were there to pounce as soon as those people showed up and they asked the question to the disciples, why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? Let me just interject here. There are two, or there are different schools of thought on how to reach sinners for the gospel. Many Christians think that our only job is to open the church doors and invite anybody who will to come. And of course, we do, and that's definitely a part of it. Uh, we ought to have an environment here that is welcoming with open arms uh, anybody who comes. In fact, we are a come-as-you-are church, really are. But what sets us apart from others who call themselves a come-as-you-are church is that we are not a stay-as-you-are church. 
You come as you are, but you don't stay as you are. Just down the road from us, there's a church that has a big giant rainbow flag displayed outside the building. And what that is saying is not, uh, by the way, uh, anybody who is of that persuasion is more than welcome to come to Bible Baptist. We will love on him. We will put our arms around him. We'll welcome and, and uh, we'd love to have him come. But we are not supporting of the sin and the lifestyle the way that that church purportedly does. And so our theme here, more than come as you are, uh, we complete that with come as you are, leave changed, amen? Because Jesus will change you. But So that's part of the picture. We have an open door policy. Everyone is welcome to come, and we want everybody to come and, and hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the church, friend, is a, is a hospital for sinners, not a hotel for saints, amen? Uh, and so we want to understand that. But Jesus takes it further. He wants, he instructs us to go, uh, to lost men with the message of the gospel. Now, I believe very strongly in separation from sin, but we are to love the sinner. There's a danger that our separation becomes isolation when we take it too far, all right? Uh, we're not supposed to separate from sinners. We're supposed to separate from sin. And what the Pharisees were concerned about here, you understand, is contamination. We all know about contamination. It happens through proximity. This last uh, couple of weeks, my wife and I ate at the buffet. Morning, noon, and night, pretty much. And afternoons and mornings and, and late evenings. We, the buffet, that's what a, a cruise ship is. It's a buffet on a boat. That's what it basically is. And uh, so we went to the uh, when we would go to the buffet, they had such friendly staff, and and uh, there's always a girl there. And at the when you're walking into the buffet area, there's two entrances. There's two girls at both ends, and in the middle there is a hand sanitizer station. And when you walk up uh, to go to the buffet, she's always there to say washi washi, washi washi. Every person that comes by, two thousand people coming by, washi washi, washi washi. Great job to have, isn't it? And uh, but that she's reminding us, you want to. Clean yourself up, okay? We're in a small area with a lot of people, a lot of germs floating around, uh, because we understand that if you're physically healthy and someone around you is sick and sneezes on you or you get some of their germs, you may be healthy, but they're unhealthy, and their unhealthy makes your healthy unhealthy. We understand that, right? That's, that's uh, contamination through proximity. The germs come on to you, and now you get sick. Uh, there was a pastor's son, small boy, and he was told by his mother uh, you should, uh, he should go wash his hands because there's germs living on his, in the dirt on his hands. And he goes to wash his hand, but he kind of mutters, germs and Jesus, germs and Jesus. That's all I hear around here, and I haven't seen either one of them. Uh, but they're there, amen? <laughs> their germs are there, whether you see them or not. I tell you what the germ I'm afraid of, that one percenter germ, you ever notice the, the Lysol wipes and the sprays and all those things? They always get 99% of the germs. That 1%, that's the one I'm scared of. But at any rate, the Pharisees, they believed that not only was this true physically, but it was also true morally and spiritually. Not only would the healthy become unhealthy through contact of the unhealthy, but the pure, the virtuous, the righteous would come, would become unclean through contact with the wicked. 
And so when Jesus comes and eats with these people and he has contact with them who don't follow God, they don't worship God, they don't live right, they don't have good habits in their lives. So if Jesus is around these people who are morally and spiritually corrupt, Jesus would be defiled. That's what the Pharisees' take was. That's what they're saying. And before we beat up on the Pharisees, they have a point. They have a point. We might miss it because we live in a little bit of a different society today, uh, the frame of mindset or the frame of reference that we have. We live in a society that believes that we are all basically the result of our own individual choices, but they would be much more apt in that day to think that you were what you were as a result of your community. And even more so when we start talking about meals. Meals are incredibly relational modes of camaraderie of uh, communication, <laughs> camaraderie. I was homeschooled, I'm sorry. Goodest thing that ever happened to me, but it gets me in trouble sometimes. They were, but meals are intimate. Meals are personal. The barriers come down. Uh, it was probably what you did on your first date. Probably went to a meal. It's probably what you do now after you've been married 10, 20 years and you want to have a date night. You probably go out for a meal somewhere. That's what meals are. There's something personal about it. Meals bring down barriers. In fact, I'll go as far as to say this. You become like the people you eat the most with. Think about that. Who you spend the most time with. That's what forms you. That's what forms me as we grow. Uh, The people you eat with the most are who you become like. So it wasn't unreasonable for the Mosaic law to be what it was. You go back to Leviticus, you see all kinds of dietary laws, all kinds of rules. They were so detailed about what they couldn't eat and what they had to eat and what uh, who they could eat with, and, and they would never sit down and have a meal with somebody who wasn't compliant with their code. In other words, you wouldn't sit down and have a meal with a pagan. And this is, uh, as a result of all that, the Jews in the Old Testament were protected from the beliefs and practices of the pagan countries when they actually observed these laws. But Jesus comes along and smashes all of it. There's a reason for it. He ignores these dietary laws. You remember when Jesus was walking along after they had done some miracles and the disciples were hungry and so they picked corn on the Sabbath and ate it? Big time legal violation. You couldn't, you couldn't harvest on the Sabbath and the Pharisees got all in a, a tiff about it. Well, the, Jesus smashed these codes that they had, and this infuriated the Pharisees. They said, you're going to be defiled. Uh, you're going to be spiritually contaminated by these people. What does Jesus say about it? Look at verse 12. This is so vitally important to understand how Jesus handles it. Verse 12, Jesus said, They that be whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. That's a great statement. Essentially, he's saying, I am the great spiritual doctor. And those that are whole don't need... But By the way, what kind of doctor only hangs around well people? Not going to be much of a doctor, is he? A good doctor is around sick people. He's helping sick people get better. So he says, I'm that spiritual doctor. Look, we all know at the core of it. Sometimes we have a hard time admitting it. But we all know that at our core, we're sick. We're sinners, we lie, we have pride in our hearts, we do wrong. We know if we're honest with ourselves that we are sick, we're angry, we're sinful. Then Jesus comes along and says, I'm the doctor 
for your soul. Now, it, now we, it doesn't stop there because this metaphor, there's still a problem with that metaphor. If a doctor wants to help people, for example, with typhoid fever, he can't just simply come in contact with it. They still wear protective gear and masks and all those things to try to protect themselves from it. The worst thing they could do is get the sickness themselves. And so the metaphor is still lacking a little bit, and that's the Pharisees' issue, the contamination, the proximity that Jesus has with them. But here's what Jesus is saying, and it helps if we take the uh, chapter 8 and pair it with chapter 9. The Bible is the best commentary on itself. And so when we look at it as a whole, it helps us understand what Jesus is saying. In chapter 8, you don't have to turn there, I'll just tell you about it, but there's an incredible incident with a leper. A leper comes and throws himself down at Jesus' feet for healing. Now, lepers were absolutely contaminated. They were totally unclean. Both they were physically and morally unclean. Physically, they had a skin disease, and people were afraid of the infection. And so the leper had to live outside the community. He couldn't come around his family, his friends, and other people. In fact, if a leper got too close to you, he had to, by law, yell out that he was unclean. And if he got too close to you, you could throw rocks at him, all right? Because he was not supposed to get around people. He was contaminated, physically absolutely contaminated. Morally, he was unclean too, or so folks thought. He wasn't allowed to come into the temple for worship. Uh, people believed that leprosy was a judgment for God. So if you, from God, so if you had leprosy, it's because God's punishing you for something. Essentially, you deserve it. Isn't it a horrible thing to get that sick? Isn't it worse to have everybody think you deserve it? It'd be a terrible, terrible thing. And so this leper, he comes and he throws himself at Jesus' feet and he says, If thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. I think this is remarkable. The, the leper knows that all Jesus has to do is just want him clean. He doesn't have to say the magic words. He doesn't have to say abracadabra or, or put, mumble some spell. If Jesus wants him clean, he'll be clean. And what does Jesus do? He goes beyond the leper's request. He reaches out and touches him and says, I will be thou clean. Jesus didn't have to do that. He just had to speak it. He just had to will it. So why does he touch him when he doesn't have to? He touches the man, which is illegal, by the way. Wasn't supposed to do that. And it's illegal that if he touched him, he's supposed to immediately trot off to the priest and go through a ceremonial cleansing. Doesn't do that either. Why? Because he's turning all these, he, he's shattering all the norms, Jesus is. And in all of history, when the infected comes into contact with the healthy, then the healthy gets infected. We all understand that. When the unclean comes into contact with the clean, the clean becomes unclean. We get that. All of religion, by the way, is based on that concept. Uh, you work very hard to become good. You work very hard thinking that you maybe are good enough to go to heaven. And to be good enough to go to heaven, you have to stay away from the defiled, from the bad people. You have to stay away from people who are unclean. Yes, Jesus touched the leper, and here's what Jesus is saying with that simple touch. Nothing can make me unclean. Don't miss this. Anyone I touch, no matter how defiled they are, no matter what you've done, no matter how ashamed you are of yourself, no matter how stained you are, no matter how guilty you are, I'll make you instantly clean. Whew, that's good stuff, isn't it? Because we are ashamed. We are stained and we are guilty. Jesus is saying, my holiness will overcome your sin. 
He's not just another religious leader trotting out a bunch of rules. Obey these 50 rules. The Jews had 363, or 600 and some rules they had to follow. And, and he didn't, he wasn't what he's doing. Uh, he's not telling you that by obeying these rules, you'll make yourself fit for God. He's saying, you come to me, I'll make you fit for God. I'll get you in the right position. Now, Jesus does what no religion can do. The clean begins to infect the unclean. That's what Jesus does. When you come into contact with Jesus Christ, it completely changes the way we relate to God. It, it, it completely, it's completely opposite to the religion dynamic. You see, religion, what it does is it creates, we could say, a very fragile holiness. It's something we can't put any confidence in because we don't know if we're good enough or not. I'm working so hard. And uh, you, By the way, you don't even have to be religious. Everyone's trying to earn their self-worth. Everybody's trying to perform, trying to feel good about themselves. Satan's ploy is to make you feel in your core that your value as a person is tied to how much you do or how much you're worth, how much activity you can accomplish, how much stuff you can accumulate. That would be materialism. But religion essentially does the same thing. It creates a very fragile holiness. Religious people are trying to get God's favor by living a good life. And if that's the case, friend, if that's you today, and you're putting your hopes of heaven on a life you're leading, that is very shaky ground to stand on because you'll never know if you're good enough or not. That's very fragile. Uh, th there's an insecurity there. That's why, if you're that religious person, hoping to do good enough, hoping to have enough good works, you're going to stay away from bad people. You're going to separate yourself from the defiled. I was raised Amish, most of you know that. And in the Amish religion, you can't really get more separated than they are. I mean, they are completely cut off from the world. And you talk about insecurity? They are very insecure about their own holiness. And so they completely shun themselves from all of society and have nothing to do with the outside world. They, they isolate themselves because their view of their self could be threatened if they get around Wicked people. Wrong people. So we considered ourselves clean in the Amish. We were special. We were uh, God's people. Everyone else in the world was unclean. We were so insecure in our perceived holiness that we wanted nothing to do with outsiders. We couldn't. We'd be defiled because our holiness rested on us. That's what the Pharisees were doing. Jesus turns all that on its head because we see that in Christ you become clean instantly. Not because you deserve it. Not because you're good, but because He's good. Amen? Because of what He's done. It's not because of anything you've done or will do, friend. It's because of what He has done. What a blessing. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For He, God, hath made Him, Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. This is where impact comes in. Because now you, you realize positionally you are secure in Christ. You are His. And now you can move out into the world differently. Now you can sit around a table of sinners and not think, oh, I'm going to be defiled. No, no, you are already clean. Jesus Christ took care of that. Isn't that a blessing? 
Now you can have mercy on those around you as well. You see the difference? You're not like religion that says, I am so much better than those sinners, I'll have nothing to do with them. Rather, our attitude as Christ followers is, look at them, trying to find fulfillment in the things of the world. That was me at one time. I tried to do that. It was empty. It was useless. It brought nothing but misery. I want to show them Christ. It's a whole different way of thinking. That's what Jesus is turning on its head. Impact comes through our security in Christ. Now, how does this happen? How do you get the power and inclination to live like that? To reach out to people that before you were saved, you'd had nothing to do with people like that. They live different than you do. They have, uh, they don't have the morals you have. How do you have the power to reach someone like that? Listen, the answer here is so clear in verse 13. Jesus answers it. I will have mercy, not sacrifice. He starts, I'll talk about this in a little bit because go out and learn what that meaneth. <laughs> I'm going to throw one at you, people. This is so far above you. I'm going to throw this principle out at you and then go out and try to learn it. I'll have mercy, not sacrifice. This is mind-boggling to a religious person because a religious person... By the way, sacrifice is religion. That's what it is. A religious person is all about that. What I do, what I do, what I do, what I sacrifice, what I give up. That's what the Amish were about. Don't drive cars. Don't have electricity. Only... I have an outhouse. That was joyful. Man, always too far away in the winter, too close in the summer, if you know what I'm talking about. Uh, and, and so we, we try, because misery equals holiness if I'm trying to make myself holy. All right, so, but Jesus said, I'll have mercy, not sacrifice. What does that mean? By sacrifice, he's talking about the religious system. In religion, we gauge our spirituality. Am I doing enough good deeds? Am I giving enough money? Do I sacrifice enough? Do I deny myself enough? Spurgeon said this, The greatest enemy to human souls is the self-righteous spirit that makes them look to themselves for salvation. That's the greatest enemy. It's not sin, it's religion is the greatest enemy to our souls. Jesus said the answer is not in sacrifice, it's in mercy. And the idea of mercy in the Bible means having compassion for people who are not like you, who are different than you. They're undeserving Maybe they even misuse you. But guess what, friend? You're undeserving. I'm undeserving. And we misused Christ long before we came to Him and He loved us still. Surely, we think in our minds, surely we're not supposed to love people who treat us wrong. Surely we're not supposed to love people who do wicked, wicked things. May I remind you that while the hammer was swinging the nails into the wrists of Jesus' hand, He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Where do you get the power to live like that? We saw that He had a, a new calling, a new proximity, now a new power. Jesus, uh, John's disciples asked Jesus this in verse 14. Why do, we need, why do we and the Pharisees fast off, but thy disciples fast not? And His response is interesting. And I'm not going to really get into all this too much, but he talks about the bridegroom being there. Uh, they'll fast when the bridegroom's gone, but right now the bridegroom's with them. It's a wonderful symbol when Jesus calls himself the bridegroom. He does not relate himself as a king and we are his subjects, but as a bridegroom with his bride. He wants a relationship with you, so intimate, so permanent, similar to that of a husband and a wife. 
How can Jesus make the unclean clean? How can his holiness be imputed to us? It happens one way, because our sin was imputed to him. Only His holiness can only come to us. Something has to be done about our sin. It has to be. And we try to solve it by doing good works. We try to solve it by uh, living a good life, by denying things and doing all. Religion tries to solve this problem all over. Uh, but sin is not a behavioral issue. It is a condition. And there's nothing we can do about our condition of sin. So Jesus took our sin for us. He took our disease. The Bible says, by His stripes we are healed. He took. He became an outcast. He was crucified outside the gates. He became the leper. The Bible said he was cursed for us. Cursed is anyone who hangeth on a tree. Our holiness that comes to us from him comes because he got our sin. And he dealt with it and paid for it. Again, 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That changes everything about how we deal with people. We don't have to try to, ooh, icky, stinky sinners. Get them away from us. By the way, we're all icky, stinky sinners, amen? Let's just be honest with ourselves. When you're a recipient of that grace, of God's grace, how can we turn our nose down on people? Ever. Here's a fascinating truth. And, and I just realized this as I was writing these words a couple of weeks ago. Who in the Bible does Jesus attack? Ever notice that? Who does Jesus attack? Is it adulterers? Who would agree along with me adulterers are a pretty bad thing? Is it adulterers? No, he met a woman at the well and he was gentle with her. He loved on her. What about sinners? Icky sinners. He ate with them, laughed with them, joked with them, spent time with them. What about the hated publicans? These were the dredge of society. Everybody hated the publicans. Jesus called one out of a tree and said, Hey, Zacchaeus, you come down. I'm going to come and stay with you. What about prostitutes? That's a pretty low calling, isn't it? What, how did Jesus treat prostitutes? Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. What about his disciple who, tr who turned out to be a traitor? There is nothing in my mind lower than a traitor. Someone who calls themselves a friend and, and acts like they're close, but then turn on you and they become a traitor. How about the traitor? Matthew 26, Jesus called him friend. How about criminals? Criminals, the worst of society. Criminal on death row. How about a criminal, criminal that's so bad he's on death row? Today you'll be with me in paradise. How, I know. The worst of the worst of the worst. His own executioners. Surely, if he's going to get angry at anybody, it's going to be his own executioners. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus never got upset at anyone, except one group of people. And that was the religious, self-righteous leaders. He repeatedly went after them. See, we draw a line between good and we're always on the line of good. Amen? We're always on the good side. So we draw a line between good, that's me, bad, that's other people, icky sinners, people I have nothing to do with. And But Jesus does a little different here. He draws a line between sinners who know how bad they are and self-righteous religious people. 
That, that's like, that turns some of our thinking on its head, doesn't it? This is so instructive to us because we say we want to make an impact. You'll never make an impact, friend, as long as you're looking down your nose at anyone. You'll never do it. You'll never impact anybody for Christ as long as we're not honest with ourselves, as long as we think ourselves better. We have to agree with Jesus and make it about mercy, not sacrifice. He had mercy on me. He had mercy on you when we didn't deserve it so that we can go throughout our life and have mercy on others who don't deserve it either. Mercy. How do we get this new power? It's all from God's grace. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, God told Paul this, My grace is sufficient for thee. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Praise God, because I got a whole lot of that. Not strength, weakness. We all got a whole lot of weakness. His strength is made perfect in weakness. Now you don't go out into the world. Don't miss this. Now you don't go out into the world as a fragile, with a fragile self-achieved morality that religion gives. You go out into the world knowing that my bridegroom loves me. My bridegroom has accepted me. My bridegroom has, uh, has, has, is promised to come back for me. And we're dressed in the gown of his righteousness. Now we can go out and make an impact on others, showing mercy to them. That's what Matthew learns in his supper with Jesus. Matthew gets it. Jesus says, follow me. And Matthew follows in verse 13, I mentioned a second ago, he starts out with, Go ye and learn what that meaneth. Jesus gives out homework. <laughs> he says, I'm going to give you something to do. Go out and learn what this means. By virtue of the Bible uh, and us having these words, we have the same homework. We're going to learn what this means. Go learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. This is an applicable command to our desire to have an impact. You want to make a difference? in somebody else's life? You want to really make a difference in the lost world around you? Stop work, doing the checklists of how good you are and, and writing all the things that, you know, God is so lucky to have me. <laughs> Oof. I mean, just think about the day I got saved and God, wow, so awesome. I was hoping that we would get Him on our team. That's how we think. We think we're so far above other people. But instead of doing that, just start showing mercy. Loving on people. That's what Jesus did. Did anybody at that table in Matthew's house deserve his mercy? No. But guess what? I was at that table. You're at that table. None of us deserve his mercy. I try to envision what this supper was like. I always try to, you know, that if you've been here any time, you know I like to visualize these things and, and I tried to picture this supper, a bunch of degenerates around the table. They're not dressed right. Got spacers in their ears. They got, uh, they got uh, metal coming out of every orifice, stuck in every crack and crevice of their body. I don't get that. I've always wondered, how, what happens if you ever walk too close to a magnet? You know? <laughs> and worse, worst of all, probably a couple of man buns there. <laughs> Jesus didn't make light of their sin, but he showed them a better way. He, he, I believe fully he laughed with them. He had a good time with them. He joked with them. And he did not involve himself in their sin. Of course, Jesus had no sin. He knew no sin, but he showed them a better way. 
See, the Pharisees standing off to his side would never have deigned to let themselves be at a table with those sinners. And Jesus is down there in the middle of them because Jesus understands the security he has, and we need to understand the security that we have in Christ. We're not going to get, we're not going to become unclean because we talk to a sinner. Amen. We can help them. We can show mercy to them. And uh, what a blessing that is. No wonder Jesus shows mercy to one group and confronts the other. Because the hardest people to win to Christ are not bad people. They know they're bad. The hardest people to win to Christ are self-righteous people. Because they think they're righteous. And we'll never, ever receive mercy ourselves if we're not honest with who we are and what we are. We'll never really have an impact on others if we're not honest with who we are and who we aren't. Thank God for a Savior that gave Himself for us. Thank God for the security that we have in Christ. You can now make the impact that our theme verse commands, teaching them to observe uh, all the things whatsoever I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even unto the end of the world. Let me ask you today, friend, who are you impacting with the gospel right now in your life? Jesus proved this statement. You don't have to be like sinners, but you have to like them. I mean, you have to get around them. Amen? You know what salt? Salt doesn't do any good in the shaker until it leaves the shaker, and then it seasons whatever you put it on. Jesus said, we are the salt of the world. A light does not do any good unless it's turned on. It doesn't illuminate anything until you turn it on. And Jesus said, we are the light. As a church, let us not be afraid to reach out to sinners and show them the love of Christ. Jesus did, and he made an impact, and he made a big one. That's what we learn with a supper with Jesus and Matthew. Let's have every head bowed, every eye closed. I'd like to ask you a question today, friend. Nobody's looking around. I'm not going to embarrass you or call you out. I would just like to pray for you. But if you're here today and you say, Preacher, I don't know for sure if I'm one of his. I don't know for sure if Jesus is my Savior. I'm kind of one that you've been talking about. I've been trying to be good. I'm trying to do good. I'm trying to uh, hope I was good enough for heaven, but I've never really fully put my faith and trust in Christ alone and not myself. Would that be you today? I'm not sure. I'm just not sure about my eternal destination. Would you just slip up your hand and let me pray for you? Anybody here? Thank you so much. What about you, dear Christian? Have you been avoiding the very job that God wants to use you for, to reach sinners. Be like Jesus. Oh, He loved them, and He showed them a better way, and He showed them mercy. Would you stand along with me today? I don't know how the Lord spoke into your heart, but the altar is open.